0: Show number 20 of I Read Comics with me, still here.
1: If it had said, we're more uh, television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but as I just happened to be talking to a friend, they used the word Beatles as a remote thing, not as what I think, as Beatles as those other Beatles like other people see us. And I just said they are having more in- more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way, which is the wrong way. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, some, some teenagers have said, uh, have repeated your statements that the Beatles, I like the Beatles more than Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? Well originally I was, un- I was pointing out that fact in reference to England that we meant more to kids than Jesus did or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it for the fact and it sort of it is true especially more for England than here. You know well, but you- I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I would just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this.
0: didn't think I was really going to stop doing this. Nah, not me. But I was busy. As you probably know, I went to Reading, Pennsylvania for the fabulous 100th show, Um, special super extravaganza of Comic Geek Speak and they very kindly let me introduce the show with Bruce Bruce Rosenberg and it was really fun to be there and to meet so many of the fans and to meet all of the CGS guys in person because I hadn't done that before so if you haven't listened to that show go over there to ComicGeekSpeak.com and listen to it because it was pretty much fun and I wanted to say especially thank you to Bruce. Um, great to, to meet him at last. The guy who does the Comics Cast podcast, which you should also go to listen to, which is really good. Um, and we got to... Uh, talk about some things in person that we hadn't talked about before, like geeking out on Warner Brothers cartoons. That was good. And um, also thanks to Brian, who gave me a book out of his very own library, which was a really, really nice thing to do. And also to Peter, who gave me um, the new Teen Titans Archives Volume 1, the Perez stuff. Um, He thinks he's loaning it to me, but, you know, we'll see. And also to meet Vince B., who... I was thinking about this, and he's like the Italian guy that my mother always wanted me to bring home, this really big, burly Paisano guy who appreciates the finer things in life, like Barry Windsor Smith. So it was really great to meet him, too. So who knows? Maybe I'll show up for show number 200 if it works out that way. Um, So that was a big thing, and then um, WonderCon is coming up in a week, and I'm probably going to go to that, and we'll have some stuff to say about that after it's over. And in the meantime, David Arroyo, who is a wonderful comic artist living down in Puerto Rico, sent me a giant box full of books, like 10 different trade paperbacks of things that I didn't have, or things I actually really wanted, like Alias, the Bendis Alias book, and now I've got so much stuff. I hope I can read it all, because I've got that, and I got a bunch of stuff out from the library and I had things sitting around that I hadn't even gotten to yet. So uh, I'm going to try and read really, really fast. Um, One of the things in the box is this amazing book that I just started going through called DC's Greatest Imaginary Stories. And it's a collection of this stuff, um, Golden Age stuff mostly, but into the 60s of the Um, imaginary stories that are mostly Superman things like what would have happened if and I I remember reading some of these I think I probably still have them and they are just so wacky they're the strangest things ever and I gotta wonder why so many of these Superman stories are all about Lois trying to trick Clark into marrying her, they're so soap opera-ish, like who was reading these, was this really the kind of stuff that appealed to the 9 to 12 year old boys set at the time I don't know, it's just I think it's really, really strange that this was what DC was putting out for little boys at the time. So anyway, I'm going to read that and and talk about it sometime soon. Um, So I do have some new stuff to go over, some new-ish stuff. So let me get right to the first one, which came recommended by Dan Cooney, who is an artist living up in Sacramento, and he's going to be on the show sometime soon. We have to actually physically get together so I can talk to him and talk about his comic, which is called Valentine. So, he had sent me an email a long time ago that says, uh, let's see, I recently picked up Capote in Kansas by Andy Parks, who's the inker of Green Arrow and author of Union Station. The artwork by Newcomer th- a newcomer is just beautiful. It's by Chris Samney, and he, Dan says, it just pisses me off in a good way that this youngster is already so damn good. You like gay porn action. Well, Parks gives you just enough of Truman, leaving you wanting more. So I bought this immediately and I've read it like a hundred times since then because it is so good. Now I have to say, when I started reading this, I hadn't read In Cold Blood and I haven't seen the movie Capote either. And now, um, well, I've read In Cold Blood and I really want to see the movie and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, This is so good. It's called Capote in Kansas, a Drawn Novel and it's published by Oni Press, um, the guys who used to do the Bendis stuff. And it's black and white. And it does have beautiful, beautiful, um, very angular art in it. Um, Chris Samney does a wonderful job with very little in the way of shading. It's pretty stark. He does some cross-hatching here and there. Um, And Andy Parks weaves in a lot of stuff about Capote and stuff about the book and then stuff that actually happened. So... You probably know this, but In Cold Blood was the book that Truman Capote wrote about the murder of a a family in Kansas, and who did it and why it happened. And it's much more than just a true crime book. It really is a novel. Um, And it has some of the best writing that I've read in a long time. And I want to read just a few paragraphs of it later on. But um, Capote in Kansas, he calls it a novel, and clearly some of it is fictionalized. I don't know how much of this is actually in the Capote movie, but it's really the story of what happened when Truman Capote went to Kansas and how he got the the story of what happened to the town of Holcomb and how they reacted to the, the horrible murders that happened there and how it affected him personally. This was a huge point in his life, a turning point in so many ways. It was the first book that he'd written that, that was really a bestseller and catapulted him to the kind of fame that he'd always craved, but it was also probably the last really best thing that he wrote. He wrote a lot of stuff after it that was good, but I think he felt, too, it was the best thing he'd ever done. So, you know, he was a young guy, and it was kind of, not I don't want to say downhill from there, but it was a high point that he never really got to again. Um, yes, there is some gay porn action in here, but it's not very much. Capote never tried to hide the fact that he was gay, and people just kind of sort of accepted it. And according to this book, he had some, at least one interlude while he was there. You know, Who knows if that actually happened or not? Um, and there is some really interesting analysis of his relationship with at least one of the killers, Perry Smith, which is in the book, it's there not Capote's relationship to him, but whether or not he was gay or bisexual or whatever. And I think it becomes a little clearer in Capote in Kansas. Um, But man, this is just so, so good. Um, It's kind of spooky. There's a supernatural element of it here. It's scary because the murders were really brutal and horrible. And it's also... Um, the classic fish out of water story because Capote is this effete, sophisticated New Yorker who comes to Holcomb, Kansas. It's in western Kansas, and it's this it's not backward, but it's just a very closed, um, straightforward society. And he eventually does manage to make friends with at least some of the people there because he wants to tell the story and he wants to um, not glamorize the killers, but just tell what he views as the truth about it. So I love this book. I think it's really, really wonderful. And um, if you're a fan at all of this kind of stuff, like crime stuff or noir stuff, I would definitely recommend it. So after reading Capote in Kansas, I realized that I'd never read In Cold Blood. And I don't know how I missed it. It's one of those books that I should have read a long time ago and just somehow it didn't appear on my reading list. And in fact, after I started reading it and realized what a great book it was, I went around and yelled at all my friends for not making me read it earlier because they'd all read it and said, oh, yeah. was <laughs> like, well, why the hell didn't you tell me I had to read it? Um, it's so rare to read a book like this that is so well written. I can't stress that enough. Like in the book, when when Catherine and I were talking about Harlan Ellison, and I was going on about what a good writer he is, Capote is the same way. He's clearly a master of the English language. He plays with the language when he wants to. He can construct these long, ornate sentences that are perfectly simple at the same time. You can understand what he's saying, and he pits words next to each other for a reason. And he is so good at drawing a picture with words. It's just amazing. So I would, if you haven't read this book, you should go and read this book. This book was published in, um, hold on, let me check, uh, 1965, the murders happened in 1959. So it took him a long time to put it together. And this book was a sensation when it came out because this kind of book hadn't really been published before. It's a look at murder and he goes at it both from the point of view of the victims, from the town, and from the killers. And I think these kind of books are really commonplace now. You can pick up something by Anne Rule, for example, who's written tons of them. And you get essentially this. Her books are okay, but they're not written anything like this. But at the time, no one was really doing this, trying to tell it as if it was a novel, a story, um, as it happened from the point of view of the people involved in it. And I think he he came under a lot of criticism at the time for humanizing the killers who, you know, they did a horrible thing. They killed this family in cold blood. And yet he managed to look at their backgrounds and not really explain why they did what they did, but at least give you some insight into why they were the kind of people that they were. So I just wanted to read two little sections. One is just a sentence because this cracked me up. He's also, Capote is a funny, funny writer when he wants to be. And he draws these wonderfully um, concise portraits of the people that he's talking about. So he's talking now about um, one of the people who lives in uh, Holcomb, I guess. And he says, square, squat. In the earlier 40s, an Englishwoman fitted out with an accent almost incoherently upper class. Mrs. Archibald William Warren Brown did not at all resemble the cafe's other frequenters and seemed, within that setting, like a peacock trapped in a turkey pen. Isn't that great? What a great sentence. It's a long sentence. It's got several clauses in it, but you know exactly who he's talking about when he writes something like that. And that kind of stuff is sprinkled throughout. And And I want to be really clear that in this book, he does not make fun of the people in Kansas. He doesn't paint them as backwards rubes at all. He's, he understands them. I mean, they're, they're just people. He's extremely sympathetic to them and what they've gone through and how horrible it's been and spends a lot of time trying to analyze how this affected the people in the town. And that's really the best part of it, is is looking at how such a horrible thing can tear apart a really close-knit community. <clears throat> so the other thing I want to read occurs sort of two-thirds of the way through the book, and this is a scene when um, the investigators finally bring the two accused guys, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, back to Holcomb to stand trial. And everybody knows what's going on. The people in the town, it's not a very big town. There's like 300 people. Um, and they've been waiting all day for these guys to be brought back. And everyone's very nervous because is there going to be a riot? Are people going to throw rocks at the cop cars? You know, like what's going to happen? And it's cold. Um, it's its uh, December, I think. So, um, oh, sorry, January. So here's what what he has to say. As long as the sun lasted, the day had been dry and warm, October weather in January. But when the sun descended, when the shadows of the square's giant shade trees met and combined, the coldness as well as darkness numbed the crowd. Numbed and pruned it, by six o'clock fewer than 300 persons remained. Newsmen, cursing the undue delay, stamped their feet and slapped frozen ears with ungloved freezing hands. Suddenly, a murmuring arose on the south side of the square. The cars were coming. Although none of the journalists anticipated violence, several had predicted shouted abuse. But when the crowd caught sight of the murderers with their escort of blue-coated highway patrolmen, it fell silent, as though amazed to find them humanly shaped. The handcuffed men, white-faced and blinking blindly, glistened in the glare of flashbulbs and floodlights the cameramen, pursuing the prisoners and the police into the courthouse and up three flights of stairs, photographed the door of the county jail slamming shut. No one lingered, neither the press corps nor any of the townspeople. Warm rooms and warm suppers beckoned them, and as they hurried away, leaving the cold square to the two gray cats, the miraculous autumn departed too. The year's first snow began to fall. I just think the language there is wonderful, and it's... It's very realistic. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in a situation like that, and I think he's described it. And, of course, there are the novelistic touches, right, at the very end. You know, did the years first Snow really start to fall when this happened? Well, who cares, right? Does it really matter whether he made that up or whether it was what actually happened on the day that this was there? But it it just adds to the atmosphere that he's trying to create. So I'm really happy that I'm finally reading this book. Um, The edition that I have that I got out of the library is, uh, I think it's the vintage, yeah, it's the vintage paperback edition, which doesn't have any pictures in it, Um, so I had to actually go online and look up pictures of the guys who were involved. You know, there's also a movie of In Cold Blood with Robert Blake as Perry Smith, which I also haven't seen, but I think I'd like to get that at some point, um, because I think it would be good. And then I'll have done everything. There'll be the book, and the graphic novel, and the two movies. So let me take a little break and then get on to the next topic, which is going to be, the next Conan trade paperback of the new stuff because I've got some things to say about that. God in the Bowl and Other Stories. This is volume two trade paperback that just came out last year. So I'm actually getting kind of caught up on this stuff. Um, Kurt Busick and Carrie Nord. And it's got two long stories in it. The first one is the God in the Bowl. And then the second one is called something different. The Hanumar Road. So God in the Bowl had already been adapted in the old um, Barry Windsor Smith days. And I thought this was a pretty good adaptation. It's very different from the earlier one in that the focus is a lot more on Conan's interactions with the people in the town and what's going to happen. There's also a lot of setting up going on in here. Um, They introduce a new character, a woman named Janissa, who is this uh, warrior who wears this unbelievably weird outfit. And, you know, whatever. Of course, they had to make her really, really skinny and really, really sexy and have these fake breasts that no woman on earth has ever had and have a top that covers the top part of her breast, but not the bottom part of her breast. Not quite sure how that's staying on. I don't think that they had spray adhesive back in the Hyperborean age. Um, You know, they have it now, but I don't think they had it then. So maybe she never takes it off. I don't know. You know, the interesting thing, too, is that if you, in the back of this book, they've actually got some early sketches for what her costume might have looked like, and none of them look like that, except for one. And then, of course, they had to go with that one. It's like, well, you know, we have to show some tit. We can't have this skinny girl with big tits and not show the tits. We have to show them. So there's my pl- my complaint about that. Um, she seems kind of interesting. It's very clear she's going to be popping up in other places because she doesn't die. Um... I find her humorless, so she's not as interesting a character to me as somebody like Red Sonia or some of the other women that um, he's traditionally associated with. You know, she's a good fighter and all that, and they sort of um, mix it up, not fatally, but, uh, you know, is, I think they're trying to show you that they're fairly well-matched because she has some superhuman skill that he does not, that she's acquired. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, the the thing about God in the Bowl, um, the first part of it I actually like a lot more than the second part of it. And the first part of it is more about Conan showing how he deals with unpleasant situations and he escapes the guard and he knocks some guy on his ass. And it, it's just... It's fun. There's some fun to it, which I really like. The art, as usual, is outstanding. I love the way he's drawn. I love the way his face is drawn, and the blue of his eyes really stands out. And you know, it doesn't hurt that he's not wearing much through this whole thing. He's got his little loincloth thing on, so that made me happy. the The thing about God in the Bowl, though, that kind of let me down, is right at the end. So the whole story is about uh, him agreeing to steal something um, from a temple and it turns into a murder mystery because one of the priests is murdered and he's being held responsible. But there's, um, some question as to whether he did it. Turns out he didn't do it. And it, it involves, um, supernatural beings, a snake that was in a basket. And so we don't find out It, it goes along. It's really good. And of course you kind of suspect what's going to happen. And then it's not until the very last, um, actually like four pages that we actually get to see the monster that we know has been killing people all along. And the monster didn't scare me. Um, it wasn't even that weird looking. It's um, well, I'll, here's the spoiler. So let me tell you about the monster. It's uh, you know, a servant of set the snake God and it's big snake with sort of a human head, but not really. It's a very stylized looking head. Um, very, um, tubular, kind of, and Conan kills it because he cuts its head off. Now, in the old Marvel story, very much the same sort of thing, but the way the god was drawn, the the snake thing, monster, was that it had a big snaky body that was green, but the head that was on top of it was gold. It looked like it was made of gold, and it was Medusa head. It, had, it was a male face, but it had um, snakes, all these writhing snakes coming out of it, and there was a little more of it tangling with Conan. In here, in, in the news story, he sees it. Um, it's trying to entrance him, and he just kind of jumps and cuts its head off. And I, it was like, oh, it's over. All that build up for one page of him cutting the snake's head off, and I just felt like, wow, they could have done a little bit more than that with it. You know, it was scary, kind of, but I don't know. I just wish that there had been a little more interaction And I know that I'm being influenced by the original story where there was more interaction. And he actually has a big fight scene with the snake thing. And he bashes it in the head with a a chest. And and I just thought that the head, um, when it looked more like a human head, was scarier. And the fact that it was gold and it had these beautiful, perfect human features somehow made it a little more eerie and spooky. So not saying this is bad, just saying maybe I like the original a little bit better. So let me just talk a little bit more about Janissa because I have a problem with this. Um, I think it's neat that they're introducing a female character. I don't like her costume for the reasons I just went through. But there's this whole explanation of how she got her powers. And She tells this story to Conan about how she was a young girl. Her father didn't have any sons and she didn't want to just be a lady in waiting for her whole life. So she went to another character that we're now being introduced to called Bone Woman, who clearly is going to be popping up again. Um, and asks for the power to be um, the better than any man as far as uh, skill and strength in in swordplay. So the Bone Woman says, I'll give it to you, but you have to go through this horrible training. So the training involves Janissa, um, who has no training whatsoever, being put into this cave where these demons attack her. And so it's not just that they attack her, it's that they rape her. It says it right there. Um, The creature tore her garments from her and raped her, scarring her flesh and her soul. It took her repeatedly until she passed out from the pain. Um, So that happens the first night. And then the second night, there were two monsters. And then the third night, there were three monsters. um, And finally, she learns how to start using a sword and killing them. But no matter how many she kills, they just keep coming and they just keep raping her. And um, this just keeps happening. and, And there are some pretty graphic pictures of what the monsters look like. I mean, they're really awful. And it's very clear. It doesn't say the words, but it's there that they just keep raping her and 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 raping her. And I can't really say that word enough because she says, I don't know how long it lasted months, years, a decade. It's clearly a really long period of time. Do we have to have that? Why does she have to have her powers by getting raped? Okay. If it had been a boy, What if it had been a young boy who was maybe the youngest son who wasn't going to get any of his father's stuff, and he went to the Bone Woman, and she said, well, you have to pass this test in order to become a great warrior through supernatural means. Would he have been raped repeatedly by demons? Think about it. Really? Do you really think that that, that's what would have happened? I'm talking about the creators here. Is that what they would have envisioned for him? Would it not have been enough that he would have had to fight nearly to the death with these demons why does she have to be raped on top of it that is my point you know fighting for your life every single night I think that's kind of training enough I don't see why the rape has to be put on top of it there is actually a much larger issue here of the way rape is used in um, comic books because I have a lot of problems with that and I'm not the only one (laughs) Um, I was put onto it, I mean, I knew it was there, but I hadn't really thought about it very much until I've been doing some reading lately on women in comics and some other places that, you know, rape rarely, if ever, happens to men. And if it does happen to them, it's not their sole motivating force the way it is for a lot of women. Um, you know, it, the, the standard thing is a woman gets raped, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to her, and therefore all of her behavior that follows the rape is colored or caused by the fact that she was raped. Um, which, in fact, may be true for a lot of women in real life. Also, probably not true for a lot of women in real life. And underlying it is the accepted fact among men and some women that rape is the worst thing that could happen to a woman. I don't happen to believe that. I think it's a horrible thing. I don't think it's the worst thing that could happen to a woman. If you compare... What the worst thing is that could happen to a woman and the worst thing is that could happen to a man? Are they the same thing? I don't know. Is getting raped the worst thing that could happen to a man? What about losing your arm? What about having your eye poked out? Would that be worse? I just want you guys to think about that because there's a very, very large discussion around this, which I'm not going to have right now, but it's there. But I have a very large objection to Genesis needing to be raped by demons repeatedly for months on end in order for her to become a great warrior. I think that's a cheat. I think it's the easy way out. Um, so anyway, she goes away, which I was pretty happy about. Um, there's a happy ending. Conan gets to fight with uh, some more demons and... We finally get to meet Conan's arch enemy Thoth Amon, who was there in many of the stories and was a big figure in uh, the earlier Conan stuff as well. And uh, I, the rest of the story is really good. I, I like it. I like what happens. There's a lot of action in it, some really creepy stuff. The use of color is just amazing. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. And uh, Conan sort of has a little happy ending here where he gets to hook up with a merchant and some, some nice prostitutes and goes on another trip. So I'm looking forward to the next trade. I'll definitely continue to buy this despite my dissatisfaction with Janissa and the whole raping repeatedly thing. Can't say that too many times. Repeated rapes. Let's make sure we don't forget about that. Um, and I just read over on uh, the Conan site that uh, Kurt Busick is leaving and so is the artist Carrie Nord and they're going to turn it over to Tim Truman. So I am curious to see about that. I think these guys have done a great job so far and it will be interesting to see where it goes from there. Up pretty quickly because um, I have nothing else to talk about because I haven't been able to read through anything. But I did want to say thank you very much to all the people who sent me email telling me that I should continue to do the podcast and that it was important that there be a woman out there talking about these things. And I I really appreciate that from everybody who sent in a note. And I, I will continue to do this. I don't think I was seriously thinking about giving it up, but. It, it just gets discouraging sometimes, and it was also really nice to see people agreeing with me that it gets discouraging, That it can be hard sometimes, so I really want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Um, I'd really like to read one particular piece of email that I got, because I think it's important, and uh, I haven't really shared this with anyone, but I think it's um, it's good. Let me just jump in here. I sent an email to somebody, and this was his response. Maybe you can figure it out, but you will by the end if you haven't. He says... I apologize for my board. They're usually a very cool group of open minded progressive readers, but a few of them can turn into ogres when they feel threatened about a book they love. I'm sorry you didn't dig our book, but I appreciate that you took the time to review it with such passion. I was surprised by some of your complaints about the science, since co creator Pia Guerra, who happens to be a woman, by the by, worked so hard to address many of the points you complained about. I'll admit that those elements have deliberately taken a backseat to the human drama. I'd always been offended by post-apocalyptic fiction that featured women all responding to disasters involving men disappearing in the same simplistic ways, that is, going down to the United Nations and universally declaring an end to war, etc., because it seemed to suggest that all women are inherently the same, which is obviously bullshit. Before starting Why, I read a lot of feminist essays by Faludi, Paglia, McKinnon, Bright, Wolf, Dworkin, etc., and I realized that the only thing these thinkers had in common was that they all disagreed with each other. So it's been rewarding to see the response to Why by female readers be equally varied. Feminist periodicals like Ms. and Bust Magazine have praised us for being a thrilling and thought-provoking look at gender issues, while other critics think we're, well, boring and insulting. Fair game to both, I say. Anyway, thanks for your email, and here's hoping you find something to connect with in Runaways and or Ex Machina. Comics criticism needs more voices like yours, so keep fighting the good fight. All my best, Brian K. So that made me happy. And um to give one more recommendation, I'd like to talk about um, a website that's just finally up and running, and it's called Skeptic, and it's for women who are of a skeptical nature. And I think that pretty much describes me, don't you? Uh, I had heard about these guys for a while. They had a foreign board, but they finally got their zine together, and there's some really good things there. Um, and I think that it's hard for women to who are skeptical to kind of be out about it, in society, because there is a very, very strong cultural assumption that if you're a woman, you know, you need to believe in shit like, I don't know, astrology and feng shui and all that other crap. And, um, you know, there are a lot of us who just don't believe in stuff like that. So as for me, you know, scientist, atheist, feminist, not really a lot of places for me to be fitting in. So I'm really happy about the skeptics. And, um, if you're a woman listener and I know that there are some of you out there, I would encourage you to go over and check out skeptics and maybe write something for them. Cause I'm definitely going to be writing an article for them. Um, when I was, I'll just tell you guys that when I was in graduate school, working on my, um, graduate degree in linguistics, one of the things I looked at was people's claims that, um, backwards messages in records were influencing their thoughts. And that's complete bullshit. I mean, that is such complete and utter bullshit. So I think I might write a little article about that. Um, but it, it's, a good place and I feel like I really want to support them and I want to encourage other women to go there. And men too, you know, just because it's called Skeptic doesn't mean that men can't go and read it. You won't get cooties, I promise you. If you go to the Skeptic site, Skeptic, um, org, and read some of the things, you will definitely not get cooties. Um, so that's about it. And I want to close with um, a song that's a favorite of mine. And it's kind of a, a the reason it's one of my favorite songs is because one of my, my dad's favorite songs. And my dad was the guy who turned me on to science fiction and um, skeptical thinking and not putting up with bullshit and not putting up with stupidity either. So um, if you know where this song came from, you get 10 points. <laughs>